thank you guys for coming out tonight. I've been asked to say this, and I'd like to say that um, the Made in LA curators will not be announcing the artist list tonight. So <laughs> please don't ask them about it. It's not coming out until later. Um, <clears throat> my name is Savannah Wood. I'm the communications director here at Clock Shop. And I want to start, um, let's see, let's start with their bios. How about that? Um, what, How and For Whom, or WHW, is a curatorial collective from Croatia that's been collaborating since 1999. They have a particular interest in creative use of public space. Since 2003, WHW has programmed Gallery Nova, a city-owned gallery in Zagreb that hosts exhibitions of international and local artists, as well as lectures and public discussions. WHW has worked in many international contexts, including the Museo Nacional Centro de Arte Reina Sofia, the Istanbul Biennial, Creative Capital in New York City, and Kunsthal Friedericianum in Kassel. Was that pretty good? Okay. I looked that one up earlier tonight because I was like, oh my god, I'm going to mess this up. Um, all right. Anne Elgood is the senior curator at the Hammer Museum. In addition to organizing exhibitions and building the collection, she oversees Hammer Project series and the public engagement program. Prior to joining the Hammer in 2009, she was curator of contemporary art at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, DC, and associate curator at the New Museum of Contemporary Art. She recently organized the first North American retrospective of Jimmy Durham's work, which opened at the Hammer in January 2017, and will travel to the Walker Art Center, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the Ramai Modern in Saskatoon. She is co-curating Made in LA 2018 with Erin Cristoval. Erin Cristoval is an independent curator and film programmer based in Los Angeles. She is co-curator of Black Radical Imagination with Amir George, a traveling film program which is screened both nationally and internationally at MoMA PS1, MOCA Los Angeles, and the Museo Tayer Jose Clemente Orozco, among other locations. She's currently organizing the 28th anniversary of Alternate Endings, Radical Beginnings with Vivian Crockett as part of Visual Aid's long-standing project, A Day Without Art. And again, she is co-curator of Made in LA 2018 with Anne Elgin. So thank you guys all for being here tonight. It's really exciting to have all of you on stage. Um, I don't want to talk for very long up here, because I know you guys probably have a lot of questions. So I think we'll do a little bit of background about who these people are, a little bit of information about what their curatorial interests are, and then we'll open it up to questions pretty soon thereafter. But I want to start with WHW and just ask, how did WHW come to be? What was the historical context and cultural context out of which you guys came? And then if you could say a little bit about what your name means to you. Uh, first of all, thank you all very much for coming, and thank you very much Clock Shop and all the team uh, here for not only bringing us here, but taking such good care of us. It's been a great week for us here. So uh, we started working in the late 90s, and uh, I don't want to go into big history lesson, but it is important to mention that this was kind of a post-war atmosphere in Croatia, so after a violent breakup of Yugoslavia. And it really started from something which would be kind of a generational claim almost, that we wanted to think of cultural production as a space which could oppose everything that was the value system kind of flooding everything around us. And this was... In fact, nationalism, xenophobia, amnesia about anything connected to socialist past, 
and also this kind of horrible feeling that somehow the year where uh, when Yugoslavia broke apart was also kind of a ground zero and that everything before had to be forgotten. And of course, all of this was connected uh, to a process of uh, introduction to capitalism, I would say, in its worst form. So very corrupted privatization and all of its ugly consequences of, you know, uh, empo uh, empowerment of uh, a lot of people and also all the social structures which were kind of still very much a functional part of the so socialist country uh, disappearing. And um, in the 90s, most of the cultural institutions, unfortunately, also kind of either went silent or also embraced this kind of thinking. And we wanted to do something which would try to be almost as a let's say, uh, cultural production thought of as a political intervention mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do an exhibition which would be international, which would have a strong political statement, which would oppose all of this, which would really bring people together, bring people to talk to each other, bring different generations to talk to each other, and also really importantly, uh, bring kind of neighboring contacts because of the war, because, uh, of course, this was kind of a tie that was the most broken. So not only the countries which were really directly connected in the war, so Croatia, Bosnia, and Serbia, but even Slovenia, which was never, let's say, the official enemy, there was no communication between, you know, neither art scenes or institutions, and people were really not collaborating. So we did this uh, exhibition, which was called What, How, and For Whom, and it was dedicated to 152nd anniversary of Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, the impetus to do it was an invitation from a publishing house which, which republished uh, Com Communist Manifesto on its uh, 150th anniversary, which was 98. And although it had a preface by Slavoj Žižek, who was already a Slav uh, kind of a theoretical star and so on, there was absolutely no response to it. Mm -hmm. So there was uh, really kind of a, a strong silence around anything which would be connected to communism or, let's say, Žižek's rethinking, what does it mean today? and also all of his claims about how there is no capitalist manifesto and what are the consequences of it and so on. So we in a way decided let's try to see whether an exhibition can be put together as kind of a, in fact for us it was the most important a public space for discussion about all of this silence which was surrounding the topics that we felt was important to talk about. And then we decided to focus on economy because this felt like the thing which was basically also shaping at the end, as you also know, both the war and also all of its consequences. So we decided to take these three basic questions, what, how, and for whom, which are also the basic question of econ uh, economy, pr economical production, and try to see how do they relate also to cultural production, but also in a way to um, all that was surrounding us in terms of urgencies and priori priorities and, and what to talk about. Mm -hmm. So it was a qu quite big international exhibition with loads of artists, as I said, also from the region brought in, a big program of discussions, presentations, and also an attempt to really try to penetrate uh, uh, this, this silence, I would say. And also a bit of a provocation, to be honest, because of course, at that moment, to say that you are, you know, like rethinking and daring to say you are interested in, is there something from Communist Manifesto that we want to look back and, you know, maybe learn from, and also something we want to keep, was absolutely not when, uh, welcome in, in, in that moment. What kind and of response did you get to that? Well, I don't know if some of you want to pick up, or I can continue. <laughs> it was kind of success, I would say, this 
this, uh, <laughs> this element of provocation that's been a mentioned kind of work. I remember that uh, we were the first news in a prime news that day there was a person holding the book of Communist Manifesto and like these strange people got together and made this big international show. But we also really got a great response from artists from all around Europe at the moment. Actually, I think we had few American artists also. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, we had a great uh, discursive programs with Frederick Jameson talking. I'm mentioning people that you might know, but many other, I mean, it, so this was also not just in terms of subject, but how we did exhibition, it was different than what was the standard in the late 90s, in this belated moment of Croatia catching up with the West, when any validation coming from the West was the only political and cultural horizon. So we felt it was well reviewed, and it actually what was our aim to instigate debate, what is in Communist Manifesto, and description of economy from Communist Manifesto, that is still applicable to moment we were living on, and how can we open the question of, is there any other horizon of the future except going blindly towards neoliberal privatization, which was happening at the time? It did instigate kind of uh, public debates. Some of them were hostile to us, some of them were supportive, but that was not the point. Are there, is it for or against? The point was to have a discussion. And then, as we felt like this was useful and successful, let's say, then we took these three questions, what, how, and for whom, as a motto of our work and decided to continue working together. Thank you. Um, I want to hear from you, Anne and Aaron, also. We're going to jump around just a little bit. I know you guys are in the process of doing a lot of studio visits for um, Made in LA. Where, where are you? How is this shaping up so far? Um, something that I wanted to talk about in particular was that your, the announcement that you would be curating this came less than a month after Trump was inaugurated. And so I'm wondering how that is framing the way that you're looking at artists' work. Um, and how you kind of balance the urgency of this moment with the desire to have your work um, and your exhibition have longevity and in, in its relevance moving forward. Um, it's all out revolution. <laughs> we plan to That's the goal. impeach. Um, well, where we are in the process, I can respond to that first. We are deep in studio visit research stage, so we're on the road a lot. Um, we were on the road today. We are seeing a lot of neighborhoods <laughs> in Los Angeles and further afield, and um, we're just looking. We're looking and we're having a lot of conversations that feel meaningful um, and trying to both, you know, f look at new work, go to artists that we're, we know we're already interested in, um, you know, really look far and wide, but also try to understand something of how artists are feeling in the wake of the election and how it might be impacting their work or not. And, you know, I think that this is something obviously that's not exclusive to Los Angeles, that I think all of us who are citizens <laughs> Um, are thinking about what what our role as citizens might be, and then for Aaron and I to to kind of bring that into a conversation that has to do with cultural production uh, feels really important right now. So 
how that will manifest, I have, I really, we really don't know yet. But I think it's important to acknowledge what is happening vis-a-vis um, -vis conversations around what the role of art and artists can be in, in not just um, in, in a political platform. In other words, some kind of pressure on artists to somehow, you know, change discourse or make a political statement. I don't think it's about that as much as it's about, on the one hand, um, again, questions for, that are coming up for me around citizenry, but also questions of community. Because Made in LA, as a local biennial, which is something that I think we have to ask ourselves about each iteration. You know, what does it mean to do a show that focuses only on Los Angeles artists? What is the um, potential impact of that? And what can we say about our city in every iteration that's different from previous iterations and feels, I mean, one of the funny things is people have asked us at The Hammer about, um, are there enough artists in LA for you guys to do this show every two years? <laughs> Which we always crack up about, because it's like, are you kidding? Um, there are so many amazing artists here. So that's, you know, that's one obvious kind of hurdle and challenge is just to feel that you're, you're out and you're looking and you're trying to somehow you know, um, create threads and look for, I mean, it's not a thematic show, but we, we, I think, are interested in pointing to and trying to articulate some of the shared concerns that we're seeing in and among artists that, um, that I think certainly are related to our current uh, political moment in some sense. So do you want to pick up on that? That's, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, we're noticing that Artists are including all these different things into their practices now, you know, and being more conscious around activism and social justice. So a lot more writing, um, kind of collaborating and supporting social justice organizations. So we're trying to think about how we can also consider all of that. Something that we talked about a little bit last week when we had a little meeting in the garden um, was specific examples of artists who have sort of bridged the gap between art and activism effectively in the past. And I was wondering if all of you could speak to um, examples of that that you've seen that have been really effective, that have had um, long-standing efficacy over time. We talked a little bit about um, some of the work that people were doing around AIDS and, and how that was actually really effective. And so what are you seeing from artists today that you think is promising um, in this moment? Anything? Uh -oh. not, a, not an easy one. Uh -oh. No, it's not, <laughs> not easy, not easy. Um, I don't know, one of the, the first examples of um, bridging um, activism and uh, art and uh, moving um, f uh, from one environment or one community to another is example of Sanya Ivekovic, a Croatian artist with whom we have been working a, a lot uh, throughout the years and uh, we continue to work with her to this day. Um, she recently did a project for the Documenta that is a platform in Athens for meeting of uh, activists, feminists, uh, that was a kind of a gathering space, conference space, space of dissent. And for me, uh, personally, also one of the most personally important works um, that kind of opened my eyes for what uh, this bridge between art and activism can be was the um, uh, 
uh, work that Sonia did for um, a mag series of magazines in Croatia in the 90s when we started working together. It's a project called Genic 6. When in the newspapers she published a um, series of her work in the magazines that were uh, coming out, uh, she uh, published um, this work which consisted of um, photographs of the uh, famous photo models from the, the advertising campaigns. Um, but the text um, was, had a name of a heroine from the Second World War that um, died during the Second World War, that was celebrating during the socialist past and then forgotten during the 90s. And we are talking about the work that was published in the late 90s, I think 97 or 98. And so you had the name of this uh, heroine, her age at the time of that, mm. um, and this was it. So let's say Nada Dimic, um, um, uh, killed by a uh, fascist for her uh, anti-fascist activity, uh, um, a, um, age at the time of that, 22. Mm -hmm. And there, there were different, and then you had Linda Evangelista, exactly, or you know, someone. And, um, I remember opening that, like buying this um, magazine that was incidentally also very important for us. It was Argzin anti-war campaign uh, zine that was a very important voice of a dissent in the 90s, like, like a lighthouse for learning about people of a similar mindset. Opening this magazine and seeing this artwork that was kind of a uh, reopening old issues that were burning and important at the time. And Sanya continues uh, throughout her practice to address uh, important issues mm -hmm. of activism, feminism, and bridge bridging these two co communities all the time. But I think your question is really tricky because in a way, yes, there is always this ambition how you bridge this gap between activist engagement and artistic practice, but I think uh, we should be careful not to measure it necessarily in terms of its efficiency. I, I'm really interested what kind of other efficiencies mm -hmm. or inefficiencies mm -hmm. are happening with artistic practices that are not so um, easily translated into political effectiveness or any other kind of effectiveness, which is not to say that this does not happen, or, and uh, we are all kind of excited and happy when it does happen, but I don't think it's the only pressure we there are, there are nuances there, and I think the political struggle is happening in um, fields of activism and mm -hmm. political engagements, which is not to say that art is not kind of traveling with it. But in yeah. moments of urgencies, mm -hmm. like I would say we have here in US and in Europe at the moment, it's too much to ask from art to yeah. really solve those yeah. things. There are Absolutely. other ways, and we know it historically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. And something that we also were talking about a little bit was um, sometimes when you're in the midst of such turmoil, it's really difficult to have a clear perspective on what's actually going on. And so I wonder if you um, can call to mind any examples of exhibitions or artists or ideas where people have been in the midst of struggle at, or in the midst of a sort of turmoil situation, but have been creating work that doesn't point directly at it, but making work that still talks about it and think, work that has really affected you um, that comes from a certain time period but doesn't necessarily represent it. Does that make sense? Are there artists that come to mind for you or exhibitions that have had that sense 
Well, I'll speak towards the opposite, actually. And, you know, obviously I didn't go to the 93 Whitney Biennial, but in seeing Adrian Piper's um, piece about Rodney King, I thought that was really efficient in that you were in this small room and you had to experience this beating over and over again. So there, there is points when that can be effective. I'm not, I'm not really going to answer your question either, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I think one thing that this current moment that we're in right now has, has made me think a lot about is um, the role of artists in society just as figures who, you know, think critically and are discursive oftentimes in their approach or at least the ones I tend to be interested in, who are able to make bridges, you know, not just between politics and art, but other discourses and their art, and, and bring perspective and um, ideas and positions around a whole host of subject matter. And I think in a moment like the one we're in, um, you know, setting aside obvious things like NEA funding or things we might want to argue for collectively as an art community. I think also it, the thing that starts to worry me, I, I suppose, is this idea that we just aren't going to value artists and what they bring to the conversation. And, and I think that that's the thing that is important to put forward in this moment, maybe more vehemently than ever. I mean, I think we all, probably everyone in this room, does this in a daily way in their own practice and the things that they're committed to, but I think somehow making that more visible or finding more opportunity and working at an institution, the, the thing that I often ask myself is, is very simple. What is the role of the museum? What can be the role of the museum and what should be the role of specifically the museum where I work? And so then if we sort of narrow that down to a question around Made in LA, again, it's what What's the purpose of this show? Why are we doing it? What can, what can Aaron and I bring to it in this particular iteration that might resonate for people at this moment? Um, and I think that you know, these, are, these are questions probably that we're all asking ourselves daily. And, and one of the things that Aaron and I have noticed in our discussions with artists is, is the question I think is the one that you're asking, which is, uh, how does their practice situate itself within some of the challenges that we're facing, but also in some ways what I take away from it is not necessarily that um, people are more engaged in political activism, which we are seeing, of course, um, but also very simple things around the way that people choose to live their lives and the way the relationships that they choose to be in, um, the communities that they're building, and I think that those things are really powerful right now at this moment. And that's this question around community and communities within you know, the ecology of LA, which is so sprawling and huge, is something that you know, feels really kind of interesting to me, but also um, perhaps more powerful at this moment than in, in previous years. And I would maybe also add that something that is happening, and I'm afraid it's also going to be happening probably here just more, and in Europe it's definitely evident, is that 
somehow the space of cultural production and also the responsibility of art institution has gone uh, into direction of a kind of very basic duty of also just preserving a space for plur plurality, which is something if you asked me like five years ago, I would say, come on, you know, like we are doing fine with that. We have all the necessary, you know, kind of state mechanisms and political correctness and all of this is, you know, kind of doing fine. But now I really feel that, you know, it's so much of... Uh, this landscape uh, uh, of plurality is narrowing in, you know, kind of state structures and kind of political and social systems that in a way also this uh, a bit what Annie were saying about, I think we should also kind of look into very different voices that the artists are, you know, kind of choosing to care about and to in a way also teach us about and, and just to be kind of outspoken about them that this level of, you know, kind of preserving this multitude of voices, approaches, uh, choices, rights to choices is, is something which is really important uh, uh, to maintain. Because obviously I think these spaces are getting, you know, both disappearing, getting more and more narrow, and also things around bans and censorship. And I mean, all of this is unfortunately around us on a very urgent scale. I wonder if you could talk also a little bit about choice and censorship. And um, you guys brought up something when you were in Madrid that you had a piece that was, a lot of people were calling for it to be pulled from your show. If you could talk a little bit about that and um, how you sort of deal with that and then also manage if you ever have an urge for self-censorship to avoid a situation, how you manage that as well in the act of curating when you're dealing with sensitive topic and sensitive works. Um, I think we were, um, so just to recap briefly what happened in Madrid, it was, um, so um, there's a group from uh, Argentina called Mujeres Públicas. It's a feminist artist group that is dealing a lot around issues of um, abortion that is illegal in all countries of Latin America except in Uruguay. In uh, bringing this to the fore of public discussions, they are very critical of Catholic Church and they stage, um, uh, they organize many protests and they publish a lot of material that is uh, distributed throughout the protests for, for abortion rights, for bring, bringing abortion rights to Latin America. We included them into, in the exhibition Really Useful Knowledge in um, Arena Sofia in Madrid. And the first discussion with them was also how to include this material that is actually made for distribution on the street within the exhibition. And there, there are the, the, the piece that was problematic for, uh, I mean, in terms of the later reactions was a box of matches that on one side has a burning church on another side, it has a text that is actually a quote by a famous uh, Spanish anarchist, Bonaventura Duruti, that uh, says, um, Any church, uh, the only church that enlightens is uh, the one that burns. And um, the, the, the women from Mujeres Publicas actually wanted to do a, a pile of these uh, matches that could be taken away in the exhibition. Of course, when you are in the museum that has Guernica and all these million dollar words pieces, you cannot have uh, inflammable objects in the, so, so, 
So in discussions with them, we would talk, should we have empty boxes? And then what metaphorically does this mean? And then we came up to the solution where we exhibited just two <coughs> boxes as a very beautiful sculptural object in a little, um, on a little shelf in a vitrine. And um, immediately after the exhibition opening, the right-wing press got really organized around it. There was a huge petition by a society of Catholic lawyers that before that we didn't even know that exist, <laughs> which called for pulling away of the work, for resigning of the, the, the museum director. The institution reacted really, really in a great way. They stood by the work, they, they didn't bulge. It actually took them two years to complete the whole legal process so that the museum director was sued, it was, a big deal for the institution. So in terms of auto-censorship, it never occurred to us to pull the work out or to, to, to that was not, not an issue. I think what happens sometimes is when you think whether the work is problematic in terms of whether it's gonna cause a kind of a controversy, do you wanna be provocative or not when you know that things are, I think that always it's very contextual and we decide always in, in relationship with the artists. We had another situation in Moscow where we had a work in the Institute for um, uh, African Studies. The exhibition was happening in a public institution when literally, when we had to submit all the work to the director of the institution, this is the, 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 the way how things are operating in the state institution in this context. The, the this, um, director looked at the work or didn't look at the work, we don't know. Uh, there was a, it was an installation by Stodelat, a Russian group. Um, um, several hours before the opening, uh, the director decided to, that he doesn't want two parts of the sculptural installations to be in the garden. One is um, showing the Lenin's mausoleum with um, octopusy and mushroom growing out of it. And the other one is uh, uh, sh uh, showing a, p a Russian policeman as a dog. So it was a dog wild where dog. wild dog, a face of, uh, I mean, body of a wild dog carrying a uniform of a Russian policeman. And, um, in a, throughout really weird discussions, we came to the solution that these two sculptures would be covered in black cloth. <laughs> this man agreed to that. So, it, um, and actually, uh, with talking with uh, the Stodelat, were not there at the time. They were not present in the installation, but we were on phone with them constantly. They were the ones who said, "Let's not pull out. Let's not close the exhibition because of this. It wouldn't make sense." It will be like a drop in, in an ocean. He will not get upset. He doesn't care. We will not accomplish anything. And uh, there is a lot of other really important work in the exhibition. And also metaphorically, having, two, having this piece covered, I mean, having this censorship so open in the exhibition is actually more valid than you know, saying, OK, we're going to pull, pull away. How how was the work explained once it was covered? No, that was also funny because basically they allowed us, so the whole work from this group, what is to be done, was in a way researching all this mythology of you know kind of Russian woods and stories from the Russian dark past and so on. So there were many of them. You know there was also kind of oil machines dressed as Orthodox priests and so on. So also you know very provocative imaginary and it was all set in the garden. And also what is weird is that in a way they uh, 
didn't care that the photos of all of the work was in the guidebook for the exhibition. So in a way, we didn't have to do anything because basically the guide was for free. You would get it at the entrance, you know, and you would basically read the same description of the work. You would see all the photos. So they kind of, you know, made it easy for us in, the, in that sense that we didn't have to, you know, kind of talk about the context. And also this crazy cloth, in a way, was, you know, there, which obviously showed uh, what, what was happening. But I think what was important for us, and I think this was also the case uh, in, in Reina Sofia and the matches and so on, is that you also kind of weigh, you know, if the museum asked us to pull the work, and this is one of the most progressive museums in Europe who does such serious political work in terms of, you know, discussing so many things which are kind of hidden and buried in the Spanish context and so on, that also I think maybe we would not, I mean, we were not asked to, do, to, to, to make this decision, but I also think if we were weighing it, yeah. if this was, and for the artists also, you know, if this would endanger the museum and this amazing director who is running it and really has this kind of super progressive uh, uh, program going on there, then you also sometimes would decide that this is something, you know, which is worth kind of doing if it has to preserve something which is producing much more and is kind of continuing and, you know, kind of doing an important work in a way in terms of both institutional, but I would also say both cultural and political landscape. So I think it's always very specific. How do you do it? And of course, the communication with the artist has to be crucial, as Yvette says. I mean, it's interesting how like controversy works in a in a museum context. I mean, just thinking of like the Whitney Biennial, obviously the Danishets painting of Emmett Till, and you know, there's this big talk around like, oh, she's going to sell the work, and you know, it's going to go to some collector. And she made the statement like, no, I never intend on selling this work. But then you think about how much money is the Whitney making off of this controversy. So it's it's kind of interesting how the censorship controversy and, and how that actually fuels certain spaces financially. Um, I'm going to keep my promise and keep it a little bit short up here so we can open it up. I wanted to ask WHW just a final question um, about you guys have been collaborating for the past 17 years in Zagreb. And I wonder if you have do you have a sense of the impact that you've had on your city? Um, do, you, do you see it? Do you feel it? And what does that look like? Yeah, th there are good moments and bad moments, or good times and bad times. <laughs> Tell me did, about them all. Yeah, I mean, the one that Sabina was talking about, this first exhibition we did, and this momentum when we really opened something. And we also, we were not curators. We became curators by starting doing exhibitions. There was this open field of unprofessional curating, which we saw as a field of political and cultural intervention. At that time, we thought, wow, we really make a difference. And then it goes up and down. But I can say that what is important for us is to sustain the work, not to have these incredible expectations that you all the time have to produce uh, piece, uh, work that uh, moves the city, and you just sustain your practice. And now recently we had a series of projects over eight, nine months where we worked with the corporate art collection from Vienna, and Vienna is just north of Zagreb. Zagreb is kind of suburb of, semi-colonial, uh, <laughs> semi-colonial semi suburb of Vienna historically. Yeah. 
So this is this corporate collection with the, with the art of uh, Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and Southeast Europe, which are polite terms to, for post-socialist Europe minus, <laughs> minus Soviet, former Soviet Union. So completely Cold War imaginary. But it's, it is actually really a great collection with the capital pieces from 60s on. What we did, and in a moment when we had clearly fascist uh, cultural minister, we didn't uh, present the collection in a museum context, but worked with smaller uh, non-independent -in uh, initiatives, sometimes even in physically uh, tricky conditions showing this kind of masterpieces. And we did the project as a opened the collection, imaginary collection, opened it geographically, added other works, added, uh, added uh, new productions, and we really created momentum with this over these nine months. So if you ask me how I feel right now about our work, yes, we make a difference. <laughs> but of course, it's, it goes up and down. And I think it's fine that it is like that. Yeah. And maybe just a, one little thing to add, which I think is also helping us in this, let's say, uh, sustaining and not giving up, is that uh, I think this is also kind of maybe a heritage of a, a you know, socialist past and so on, that we are absolutely not alone in that. So there yeah. is a lot of organizations which are you know, from different disciplines uh, doing similar type of works. Also, we are doing a lot of collaboration with different activist organizations. So there is really a scene which gets together and somehow using the fact that you know, like whole Croatia is like, I mean, I don't know, one third of LA or something like that. Like there is four million of us. So it's really tiny. There is also some benefits in that, that you can, you know, get together, influence cultural policies, you know, mm -hmm. really do a lot of advocacy. Uh, also be allowed just in a way, you know, that we do also a lot of protests on the street. And, you know, we also manage to um, kind of get into media when we are protesting around something and so on. And this scene, although, again, as Natasha said, also as a scene has its good and bad moments, it really kind of didn't stop. So there was also a lot of solidarity uh, all the time. And this is something which I think uh, has very much influenced that not only us, but also the other initiatives kind of kept going. And in the last two years, as unfortunately mostly in Europe, there is a really strong and harsh reactionary conservative right turn, which is also influencing Croatia and of course, you know, its cultural policy too. And I would say that it's also very clear when this happens that all of us are kind of getting together, you know, more and also trying to find the ways how to support each other. So this is also one of the reasons why we wanted to show this contact collection in a lot of these small spaces, because this was also a way to maybe help some of the spaces, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of sharing the collection almost as a resource. So there is always also this kind of networking element, which I guess is inherent for us, mm -hmm. since with, after all these years of collaboration and kind of being constantly in dialogue, then this is also kind of a way of working, which we then I mean, approach other organizations and individuals in the similar way. Yeah. It sounds like Anne and Aaron, you were talking about that a bit also, and the different communities that are popping up around artists and how they're building these coalitions to um, sustain their practices and explore their activism with other people. Okay, I'm going to stop talking, I promise. Um, I, we are going to pass a microphone around. Chris is gonna be around, so please wait for that before asking your question. You're gonna take that one? Okay. 
Um, I was just in Zagreb two weeks ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, and I was there for business. And, and can you speak to, I, people had so many opinions about um, the government um, and the Catholic Church. And first I would say, one of my favorite countries, and the people were amazing. So I really enjoyed my time there. But I want to know if the Catholic Church has any, I don't want to say influ influence on what you do and what you say and how the response from them, if it, does, if it has any impact at all. Well, it forms our landscape to a large extent. Uh, um, 98% of the uh, Croatian population declares themselves as Catholic. Um, it's the largest percent in Europe, after, together with Ireland and Poland. Um, Catholic Church gives uh, open proclamations before elections that a true Catholic should not vote for a party supporting same-sex marriage and uh, similar issues which means don't vote for social democrats, so even the centrist left. So yeah, it's very problematic. It influences our daily lives in a way. And um, one of the biggest yeah. capitalists. One of the biggest capitalists, I mean, when the, private, uh, the return of land, return of property post-1990, they got things returned that were taken to them during the Napoleonic times, not only during socialism. So it's really, you know, it's a big... Not paying taxes. I mean, it's a, it's a huge force in the society. It's a big corporation. It's very well organized. It's uh, ingrained in the society. Also, what is important to know, I mean, Croatia, before the conflict, in the 1990 census, had 14% uh, of a Serbian population that is uh, uh, Christian Orthodox. After the conflict, 10 years later, in, uh, there's like 3 to 4% which tells you something. I mean, there was a big exodus of minorities that was uh, governmentally instrumentalized. I know from Catholic people that stopped going to church in the 90s because they couldn't listen to the sermons, although they're religious. So it's a dark force. <laughs> it's a dark force in the society, for sure. No. And just to their credit, after you proclaimed rightly, that they are dark force. There are very few voices from Catholic uh, establishment coming, really very few, but I'm happy to say that there are who are on the side of social justice, who follow this other tradition of Catholic Church, which also exists, unfortunately not in Croatia. But, yeah. And I just want to add something which is connected to, uh, I think, uh, a duty and <laughs> almost a lesson that we all also have to face, uh, talking from, let's say, a le left position, no matter how hard it would be defined in political terms in Croatia and everywhere, is that the Catholic Church does have this network on the ground. So there is a church in every village, and in a way, they also have this huge machinery, which they absolutely, you know, kind of are inf in influencing everything, connected also to education, you know, kind of really interfering into that, so making it also super conservative and so on. And I think the problem is that, of course, I mean, not only the social democrats, and unfortunately, there is only now beginnings of the beginning of something which would be more left than social democrats in Croatia, 
they don't do the activist work on the ground. So there is no this political organization which would basically really go and talk to the people and see in which way we have to offer also a different solidarity network and a different network which would show the care for all of those who are basically out of the system in terms of very existential things. And of course, I think this is something which is connected to the US problem and the Brexit problem and so on. So I think this is also something where basically the church also grows its power because there is nothing else which would take its position you know, in all of these communities where people are really left alone in a horribly dark landscape. Hi. So I'm curious because as part of curating a show, you're inevitably, you're creating a sense of community, but there's also elements of your own exclusion and inclusion. And I think, Aaron, you brought up the Whitney Biennial, and I think that's one thing that I was surprised that didn't get more press was Rafa Esparza's intention of bringing in people who were not chosen, right. which, of course, has a lot of different statements and also mm -hmm. diversifying the biennial racially as well. And I'm curious, when you're putting together a show, do you ever consider that as a possibility that, let's say, you might decide to cap it? I don't even know if you have, let's say, you're working towards a number, really, it's more organic. But the idea that there might be an inclusion of a community that you might not have access to, or that there might be, let's say, pluralities that might extend beyond your own curatorial forces. Is that something that you keep in mind, or is it something that you're open to? Yeah, definitely something we're open to. I think that's kind of a hope in some ways, and I think that can come through in you know, public programming and events. Um, and in other spaces that aren't just the exhibition space. You know, I think, unfortunately, with the Whitney, because that controversy took up so much space, none of the other artists really had a chance to, you know, really be spoken about or critiqued, you know, um, in a public space. Um, but, you know, I, I went to the opening and I saw Rafa there, and he made this beautiful point, which was, the reason my piece is on the first floor is because the first floor is free, so everyone can see it, you know? And I, I really appreciate artists who are kind of in that mind frame of like, how can I include people who may not feel welcome here, who historically haven't been welcome here, and kind of what is my sort of integration into this institution? Thank you all. Um, I was curious from our guests from Croatia, is, are there any institutions from civil society in, in Croatia um, that work with you that feel like a safe place, a place that you can work with to help change society against the forces like the church? For instance, I curate the series for the Los Angeles Public Library, so that's a place where many people feel safe, and we like to collaborate with artists so are there comparable situ um, institutions in the big cities in Zagreb that you can work with as artists? Um, yes, yeah, Sabina already mentioned there is, a, there is a very strong activist scene coming from different fields, from different art fields, also so civil society, less in, in the institutions. And that also shifts. I mean, 19s were really, really, really tough. And then it got better, and we thought it, it's getting much better in terms of institutional landscape, and then it's getting worse again. But uh, there is, um, 
there is a strong community of civil society. I mean, we grew out of it, actually. When we got together, we got together um, around this magazine that is anti-war campaign uh, zine, Argzin. We literally sit in, there in the corner of their office uh, on an old computer that was our first working space. Um, our know also a bit of our know-how in terms of organization, funding, looking for funding and different things came from being involved in different uh, non-profit situations throughout the 90s that came from the anti-war and uh, civil society. So there is a strong network of human rights organizations, feminist organizations supporting each other. Yes, there is. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you all very much for um, participating in this conversation, which is so important. Um, I wanted to bring up, I myself, I'm an, I'm an artist. I, I don't know you, you women, but I, I sure would love to know you women. You're tough, I mean, amazing issues you're bringing up and that you've been working with. I want to bring up the question you of- have to talk a bit louder. Louder? Yeah. Oh, I'll just do this. Okay, yeah. sorry. Um, <laughs> Wow, that's a big difference, thank you. Um, as an artist, I've always been also an activist. And I'm really aware in my career, which has been over many decades, the number of times that I chose very carefully not to bring my activism into my artwork. Um, for many reasons. And there's, there are moments in activism that don't belong in art and lose the effect of what I might be doing on the streets. Um, that I didn't, well, I was afraid of compromising um, the work that I was doing as an activist by bringing it into my artwork. And I don't know how many other artists think about this. I'm curious, I'm curious about even in your, your work in looking at so many artists now working in this area um, between art and activism, um, whether this question comes up. Um, I know it came up for me in the 90s when I was working with homelessness, but directly working with homeless teenagers and deciding not to turn that into my artwork that it was not appropriate, you know, that I wanted to continue working with real people with real issues on a daily basis and not aestheticize it. Or I, 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 I just, it just felt wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and there's many things that I, I do in LA over the years since I've been back the last uh, 17 years that I have a hard time bridging and a lot of my artist friends don't even know I'm doing it. <laughs> or um, my artist peers do, but many other artists don't because it's not shown in the galleries. Or I choose not to bring it into um, my work in the museum. And that, so it's a curious, you know, that's another way to ask the question that you asked earlier, the moderator, of um, how does, how, what is the effect of an of, of activism as art. And there's another way of asking that as well as what is the threshold between activism and art? And when does it, when is it not appropriate to mix it? Um, and when is it appropriate to mix it? To me, that's a whole other area of dialogue. 
Well, I think it's different for every artist and what your intention is. I mean, I feel like, you know, contemporary art is so tied to the market in some ways that I understand the resistance to sort of aestheticize like some sort of political movement or gesture. Um, but you know, all art is political, even the most formal sculpture, you know, is loaded. And so I think it's, it's around the context of the work. Um, I think what I really liked about your piece, Dorit, in my selection show was um, the way that you kind of privately talked to me about it and that, you know, all of these buttons that sort of ask these questions around empathy, do you care for me, do you appreciate me, and, and you kind of seeing that as an extension of someone who is perhaps displaced or homeless um, and that people had the ability to take these buttons away and kind of start a conversation. I thought that was really smart and important and that the empathy of the action was felt over the, the sort of hard-bodied political intention of it. Um, and so I think it's all about kind of the way that you, you do that. And you know, I think there are also political moments where it's extremely important to consider how activism and art kind of work together. Um, obviously, this moment feels extremely urgent, and like Anne was saying, we're, we're seeing people who are doing that more. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's, all, it's all based on the moment that we're in and kind of how you're going about that, what your intention is. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for the great conversation. It was wonderful to hear you speak. Uh, I, uh, the conversations about Catholicism made me think a little bit about uh, uh, <laughs> the history of liberation theology in Latin America and how those particular traditions that you alluded to, you know, extend up the spine of, of the Andes through, through the Americas and here into Southern California and, of course, have influenced not only feminism, Chicano community activism, Black Liberation Church, and many other movements here. So I just thought I'd, I'd, that's an interesting thing to, to, to think about how, it's, how that tradition has influenced here in Southern California. Um, I, I have a question, maybe to follow up a little bit on, on what Dorit had brought up, uh, but from the point of view of curating. Um, and I'm wondering how uh, working in political work um, affects curating to a certain degree. Um, I don't consider myself a curator, but I've worked a little bit um, as in that role. And, uh, and I, was, I remember a, a, a work I've done in Colombia, for example, where I, I spent some, some time. Uh, and working in Medellin, for example, uh, is not the same as working in Bogota. Medellin, who had gone through decades of civil unrest and very Baroque violence, um, developed a, a history of, of community work. Uh, dialogically driven political activist work, artwork. Um, Bogota is the center of the capital and the administrative center, and it has a very large gallery scene. Curating in Bogota is not the same as curating in Medellin. So I'm just wondering if this, uh, if the context of working with politics and political activist work uh, in sites of, of those kinds of uh, um, political precarities or even in sites of like uh, heightened emotional a uh, uh, political context like we find here in this country now, uh, if that changes curating to any degree. 
or if, I, I mean, I ask this because, of course, there's such immense pressure uh, at any form, I would guess, of institutional curating to follow along the lines of what is essentially, you know, the kind of, uh, a kind of paradigm, a, a, a lingua franca of institutional curating. And I'm wondering if there's ways to resist some of those paradigms uh, in these particular moments. I think that's a really excellent question. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an answer, but I think it's an important question to pose. And I, I guess what I would say is I hope so. I, I think that it's the responsibility of the curator, especially for a show that is intent, its intention is to, to some degree, take the pulse of a, of a moment, um, historically, politically, artistically, to um, explore the possibility that there are methodologies that might be more or less appropriate at a given moment. And, you know, again, how this will manifest for Aaron and my show, I, I, I don't know yet, but I do feel that for us to make a biennial um, that will open a little over a year from now and to not address the situation that we find ourselves in as a country and, and actually more broadly, you know, the, the kind of um, movements that we're seeing uh, in Europe and, and elsewhere uh, would be irresponsible to some extent. So I think that there may be ways in which, I mean, making any exhibition is an editorial process that of course means selecting people and leaving other people out. And inevitably we will, we will not include many artists who we find to be you know, great artists in the exhibition, and it might come down to certain choices around what feels like it has to be looked at in this moment. And I think that's where a kind of urgency can enter into a curatorial process that for a biennial is part of that methodology that would be very different from a historical show or a retrospective, obviously, or other kinds of exhibitions. So. I think that what might also be possible in what you're proposing, I think, is to resist certain paradigms in favor of something else. In other words, I'm not interested in the market right now. I don't give a shit about auction results. I don't care what the price is for so-and-so's painting. That, to me, is not a conversation I want to have. And, you know, I don't work in a gallery, so... I can <laughs> avoid that conversation to some extent, and yet I do work in a, in a collecting institution, and there are inevitably certain pressures that enter into it. But I do feel like, it, just for my own practice, and that includes Made in LA, um, that I want to resist the way that the market can skew dialogue around contemporary art and what can actually be meaningful and powerful about contemporary art which is not the market, or, or it's kind of you know, value in those terms. So I think that those are the kinds of things that, we'll, that we're talking about and that will, will inform how we approach this show. If that answers your question, I think it did. Just really quick. Um, like with that, what we've been talking about is kind of where is the middle ground of 
be, being totally reactionary to a particular moment and kind of forecasting a future and how the show kind of situates itself in the midst of that. Um, and what I was telling Anne is, I feel like this is the first time in my life where I have no idea what state we'll be in next year. Um, and I think it's because, you know, because of the fact that literally every day there's some major shift in our government that affects us, our concept of time, our imagination of time has been sped up in such a way that I don't even understand what a year is, you know, the span of a year. And so in Made in, L Made in LA being next summer, a whole year from now, um, it is really interesting to kind of think about what work we're looking at, what makes sense a year from now, what are, what are we gonna be dealing with long-term? Um, and obviously the answer is we don't know, but um, it's been interesting to kind of go back and forth with that. We're gonna take two more questions. Hi, um, I don't know if this is a, a kind of a restatement of a question, but I just, I mean, it's, it's clear that art can't do everything. Um, and it's clear sometimes that the political forces seem so insurmountable that we have to create this line of demarcation between what an organized political force can do and what art can do. And I just, I just wanted to know from like a, a curatorial perspective, how do you, in, in, in that instance, judge the e efficacy or the contribution of, of the work, if, if that even is a thing that you consider? Well, I mean, my practice is really rooted around socio-political issues, and I think that's just naturally based on who I am, what body I'm in, how I identify. Um, and so I'm always kind of thinking about that, I guess. Um, I guess that's all I'll kind of say on that. I think it depends on what sort of practice you're coming from, like who you're kind of collective of artists are that you're looking at um, and how your personal desires around curating are kind of adjacent to politics. I would like to add to this, what you said, that I think this efficacy is also in unpredictable. And there is something when you are doing a group show that there are things that happen not in individual or collective pra practices in artistic position, let's say, but there is something happening in a dramaturgy of the exhibition, in a location, in a nuances of the context. And there is something that I guess we all appreciate about exhibitions, that they are kind of rehearsals. You can't really know what's gonna happen. There is a, this rehearsal and once you see it in life, then you actually know what works, what doesn't work but you don't really have a chance to repeat it. You know, this is rehearsal without the premiere. And I think uh, when you are doing this kind of big shows, as the two of you are now engaged, which is obviously really important for this place, uh, this kind of unpredictable efficiency is something that uh, I think we all enjoy and appreciate from both sides, like participants, audience, curators, or 
I would be less interested in straightforward efficacy. I mean, imagine an exhibition in, in which you have 50 or 40 straightforward <laughs> artistic <laughs> positions that are, one is helping homeless, the other is cleaning water, the other is anti-gentrification. I mean, mm. <laughs> But even when you are helping homeless and cleaning water, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. You never know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I was one, once at a, at a panel with a writer of a really uh, important political, I mean, theory, and we were talking about the sufficiency, and it was really immediately after Istanbul Biennial that we curated there, and that was also pretty controversial. And then he said at one point, but I don't know exactly what effect of uh, my books will have on people. When you do a book, you kind of send it out to the world. It's similar with the exhibition also. You op open it up to millions of different interpretations. Just like a, an experiences, exactly, yeah. Just like an individual work of art. Yeah, no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, this unpredictable moment, we had a show like a million years ago in, uh, which was on collect collectives, art collectives. And there was a lot of political agenda. And what happened in the exhibition in the end was kind of too much presentation. You present one after the other. I'm not complaining. We were happy with the exhibition. But this uh, unpredictable element was that, and this was a big German museum, that we had food every day together in a museum because the budget of the show was too little to give people per diem, so we shared a meal uh, in the museum every day. And it was international show. We had people from Russia and Latin America was kind of our focus, let's say, geographically. And this is really something that was not planned. And it, this was totally efficient. There was, we were joking, there is a brotherhood and unity of Latin American Russian people. And people continue to collaborate and certain exchange of knowledge. And we had very young, Un, um, unknown artists with people like art and language and important established groups. And all this happened through something completely unpredictable. This is what you were talking about, ways of life and how you organize your community. So it was really not about political art at all. It was more about making art politically, if you, we can put it in these 60s kind of terms, yeah that the Argentinian collective, etc., ask art and language, and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> no, and they actually answered, oh, we are just two old farts, which was really charming British humor. Yeah. One more question? How do you see practices based in painting fitting into our political moment? And curation that's more activist-driven? Well, figurative abstraction is having a moment. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that was going to the Whitney show and seeing, you know, from Dana's work to Henry Taylor's work to Celeste Spencer's work, um, the figure coming back onto the canvas um, in speaking of politics and experience. Um, and I think that was actually the highlight for me of that show was seeing like, 
uh, I was walking through the show with the painter, and I was like, uh, what did I say? I was like, oh, there's so many more paintings in this show. And he's like, no, they're not. It's just the scale of them. And it just made me think about, you know, how that particular work was in relationship to our certain political climate. And so it was just the work that I think naturally spoke to me. Um, yeah. I was just going to add that it seems very clear that questions around representation, um, who has a right to represent another body, what kinds of issues get provoked through, through representation, which could be in any medium, of course, but obviously in painting, um, I think because of the history of painting, it, it seems to carry a, a certain weight, but also perhaps um, lend itself to a certain kind of dialogue that is related to it as a medium and, and um, that might be different than, let's say, photography. But to me, it's interesting to think how a painting you know, might situate itself so that it, that it seems to operate within certain questions that we've been asking ourselves in contemporary art actually for a very long time. But certainly, it seems that some of these questions have been coming up a lot more frequently. Questions that perhaps we thought were more resolved than they seem to be. And also, if we want to talk about figurative painting in particular, I think because there is a general let's call it anxiety <laughs> within our um, society right now. Um, I th what, what we're also really noticing in our conversations with artists that may work in any medium um, is a certain awareness of the vulnerability of the body and people feeling at risk, people feeling um, anxious, etc. cetera. Um, and so I, th I can see how that is manifesting within painting not exclusively, but certainly it seems to lend itself to exploring some of those ideas. Thank you all. I want to, um, I'm actually gonna have the final word on this. Um, there are suggested readings available on clockshop.org for this event, so if you are interested in any of the ideas that were brought up here and you wanna learn more, every single person on this panel has suggested readings um, that you can delve into. Uh, we also ask everyone for all of our counter-inaugural events to select a book that's been very influential in their, pro in their process and in their practice. And so I'm going to ask you guys to describe briefly why you chose the books that you did. They're available for sale over here from Skylight Books, who's been partnering with us. So if you could just um, tell us the title of the, one of the books that you suggested and why you chose it, um, and then we'll, we'll end there. Did I choose the Marsha Tucker book? I don't remember. <laughs> it's probably, it's likely. Um, a Short Life of Trouble. <laughs> Just because the title's so amazing. Um, so it's, a, it's the autobiography that Marsha Tucker, who founded the New Museum in New York, started. And in a way, it's, it's not um, a political polemic. For, I mean, it's not theoretical. It's not many things that some of the other readings are, but I think it does speak to the life of living a life in the arts and in a way that I, f I think is quite inspirational on the one hand, but also very honest and 
you know, you have to imagine that this is a person who got fired from the Whitney um, in the 1970s and then said, you know, fuck it, I'm going to start my own museum. And, you know, I will forever love her for doing that. So it's a good read. It's a quick read. It's a good summer, good summer reading. Um, well, you can guess which one I chose. <laughs> Just, uh, it's called Exhibiting Blackness. Um, it was made in, or written in 2011, um, and I'm totally blanking on her name. At, thank you, thank you. Um, she's a professor at UC Irvine, and she grew up in LA, and she basically talks about, you know, what that means um, in a contemporary art sphere, but other places also, and she kind of starts the conversation with uh, the first show in Chicago that was a, a show of black artists and how it was, it was a combination of um, modern and primitive arts, um, which was really interesting. And then she talks about how, I'm, to I'm forgetting which museum it was, but how the museum sent all the artists this letter, like essentially saying, you know, you need to kind of follow the guidelines of the museum and you need to understand how the space works in order to show here. So how that first show really kind of informs a certain practice um, for people within the institution and how that conversation continues to grow, so. Uh, we chose, um, one is really not easy summer reading, I would say. It's Peter Osborne, uh, <laughs> Anywhere or Not at All. It's a book written a few years ago, two, three years ago, by a British philosopher. And it's about ontology of contemporary art. And this is a question that's popping up more and more in last years. What do we really talk about when we talk about contemporary art? When you pose the question about the painting, then my first impulse is, uh, why do we still talk about art being based in certain media? This is something he discusses, but what, was, what is maybe the reason we suggested it in this particular context is also because he talks about contemporaneity and how art actually contributes and builds contemporaneity. And so it explains what do we talk about when we talk about art and how it lives in the world. But as I said, it's not necessarily easy summer reading. The other one is uh, also not easy summer reading, honestly. It's by Keller Esterling, uh, American professor somewhere at some good university in New York. Her, the title of the book is Extra Statecraft, and she talks about infrastructure and about unregulated corporate spaces that are visible or invisible, like uh, duty-free zones or zones of unregulated labor, and how they occupy more and more, uh, how they govern and how they become a model of governance uh, increasingly. And it's a fascinating and rather precise read. So. I would actually recommend it as easy summer reading, yeah. <laughs>